Well, this is what I thought I was going to preach about last week, but didn't. And uh, probably a bit different than normal. <laughs> so bear with me. Uh, for those of you who have been coming on Sunday nights, have been reading The Pursuit of God by Tozer. And, um, well, we're going to preach on chapter 7 rather than teach it today. I think is what we're going to try and do. But to get there, I want to start with a little bit of information that you may or may not have about your own selves. I want to talk about vision. It is probably the most important sense that we have as, as humans. We, we rely on it very heavily. Uh, there might be a few animals that have better vision to some degree than we do as far as distance or some things like that, but primarily this is the sense that we use to communicate with the world and with one another. Uh, most of the other senses we have kind of fall in lesser order, if you will. And one of the really important things about vision is where we're looking. Where we're looking. Now, maybe you're kind of tired of hearing police stories, but I'll just tell you a couple more, and you can deal with it. Uh, I learned very, very early on that someone's eyes tells you an incredible amount of information about them. I went to a um, special school after I finished the academy uh, a couple years later called Drug Recognition Expert. And part of that was to be able to identify beyond just alcohol what people might be using. And a huge portion of that had to do with the eyes. It had to do with how big the pupils were, how quickly they would react to light, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I got very, very good at this. Um, part of it was just out of practice. Uh, working the evening and night shift, I had a lot of opportunity to be concerned about people who were using substances. And from a fairly decent uh, distance away, could walk up to a scene, especially if the afternoon shift was on. They weren't quite as good as this as I was, per se, and can see someone 15, 20 feet away and say, that person's been drinking. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's go test. And we could look. So I got very good at looking at those cues. I also got very good at looking where people's eyes were. Now, maybe you've heard this, that uh, you know, if you look up and to the left, that's you're telling the truth, and down to the right, you're lying. Well, that, that's a bunch of nothingness. However, what you do look at says a lot of things. So if I was to take, uh, show up to a uh, specific uh, traffic stop, for example, and someone kept looking at their glove compartment, my suspicion would be aroused that there's something in the glove compartment that I need to be aware of, right? Uh, the same is true if I'm out with somebody and they keep looking at something on my belt. I would then begin to assume that they are wanting the thing that's on my belt. Right? So this is uh, very, very important to see where other people are looking. All right, now lastly, I want us to do, again, I told you today is going to be different. I had to explain a little bit, and then I want everyone to stand up for just a minute who can. We're going to do a little experiment here. I told you today is going to be different. All right, but you'll remember this for the rest of your life. It's that exciting. Okay, I want you to look straight ahead, and as you do, I want you to put one hand, uh, maybe like a, a finger in front of you, and while, without moving where you're looking, looking straight ahead up here at the front, I want you to lower your finger until you can't see it anymore. Don't look down at it, just about the time it falls out of, out of your field of vision. Does that make sense? So for me, somewhere around here. Everybody got it? 
Okay? Now put your finger back up, continue looking straight, and I want you to go up until you kind of falls out of your field of vision. Right? What you'll notice, thank you, you can sit down. What you'll notice is that you can see down further without looking than you can up. Does that make sense? All right, this comes in. This is, this is very important on two counts. One is very practical. When you're texting while you're driving and you're trying to hide it from the cops, when you put your phone down, you actually can't see where you're going. You'd be better off holding it up. Does that make sense? Because your field of vision up is limited as opposed to down. In fact, it's limited. You can see... Um, down about 75 degrees, average. You can only see up about 50 degrees from, from zero. Does that make sense? So you have to purposely look up. Does that make sense? So we walk, we kind of see down around us, and our, our natural uh, vision is actually about 10% down, slightly down, right? I guess everybody should do like this. Right? You're looking slightly down. Uh, and you naturally see more down below you than you do up. You have to purposefully look up to see things. Okay, so with all that said, keep that in your mind, okay? This will all come into play here in a minute. Like I said, today's an unusual sermon, but I had to get some of this out so you would understand and hopefully at some point go, ah, right? That's, that's the goal. So let me begin, and again, continuing with the uh, unusualness of today, I'm going to read uh, a paragraph out of this book that I want us to consider today. He says, in the scriptures, there's practically no effort made to define faith. Outside of a brief 14-word definition in Hebrews 11.1, I know of no biblical definition, and even there, faith is defined functionally, not philosophically. That is, it is a statement of what it is in operation, not what it is in essence. It assumes the presence of faith and shows what it results in rather than what it is. We will be wise to go just that far and attempt to go no further. We are told from whence it comes and by what it means. Faith is a gift of God and faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. This much is clear. And to paraphrase, and he goes on to talk about some other people. And I'll pause there. So don't forget the vision part. We're going to talk about faith for just a minute. What he's referring to is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Many of us know this and can quote it by heart. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's all we get. And I can tell you, both I myself have tried to use this to define faith. But even as a young man, I remember listening to Bible studies where we tried to define what exactly faith is. And of course, we would often turn to that verse. But I always felt somewhat dissatisfied at the end because I didn't feel like it really said what faith was. And the point that this author is trying to make is that this is not a um, philosophical explanation of faith. It is rather an example of faith faith. It's an example of what faith is. And again, I struggled with this, and, and still to this day, if I was to be asked to define what faith is, it'd certainly be challenging to do. It's easier for us to define the results of faith than it is faith in and of itself. But we do see an example of this in Numbers, and you'd like to turn with me there. Numbers, chapter 
21, Numbers chapter 21. As we've mentioned over and over again, the Israelites, after they've been freed from bondage and they see all these amazing signs that are before Pharaoh, the Red Sea is parted. They walk across on dry ground. They are sheltered during the day by the cloud that guides them along the way. They're given light by fire at night to protect them and give them warmth. They are fed by the very hand of God uh, through manna. We see water coming out of the rock. We see all these amazing things. And yet the Israelites continuously time and time and time again would sin against God and arouse his anger. And here again in Numbers chapter 21, we see another example of this. And just as we should always remember, we today are very, very little different than they were then. We can see all the great things that God has done for our lives and continue going on about our business and somehow be angry when we don't get what we think we deserve later and raise a fist toward God. So they began to complain. And the Lord became angry with them. Let me start Numbers 21, verse 4. And it says, And they journeyed from Mount um, Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. I'll just pause here for just a minute. Again, I just all these things they saw, God miraculously feeds them every morning this manna that tastes really, really good according to the scriptures, right? And they're like, ah, I'm sick of this. I want bread. It's just incredible. Let's pick it up in verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and they bit the people, and the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray to the Lord God that he taketh away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass... He lived. That's the end of the story. Very short story that we see. And again, another miraculous way that God in his infinite love for us and his care for us is going to make sure that even when we're sinning against him, we can still find a way to seek and earn and get forgiveness. And in this way, it was a very counterintuitive way. He told Moses to make a, a bronze or a brass serpent, a representative of the very thing that was causing them problems, and to put it up on a pole, and anyone who was bitten and going to die could come and look at this and be healed. Now, how much sense does this make? How many people do you think? Now, we can sit here and read this dispassionately and think, okay, this happened, but let's just go through this. If we're wandering around in the desert with a couple million people, or however many they had at this point... And you're bitten by a snake, and Moses says, hey, just come look at this fake snake, and you'll be good. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? What did it take? Faith. It took them actually believing that what Moses was saying through God, and what God was telling Moses, and Moses was telling the people, they had to go, and they had to behold, they had to look at the very thing that was causing them problems. 
that was causing them to die. Well, this is mentioned again in the New Testament. John 3, 14 through 15, discusses this very incident. John 3, 14 and 15, this is Christ himself saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And what we see here is Christ himself bringing this into our understanding and saying, listen, this is what's going on. Moses had to lift up a serpent onto a pole that the people would believe by going and looking at the serpent and live. You must believe what? In me, because he knows what's getting ready to happen. He's getting ready to be lifted up on a pole. And we are shifting this idea. We are making it... um, A very similar thing here. And what he is saying is we no longer have to look physically on Jesus Christ's body on the pole, but we must believe as in have faith in who he is to receive what? The forgiveness of sins. And so this same concept is drawn forward. Now, the people had to go and physically look at the serpent. Now that Jesus Christ has come and his final work, we must in faith believe that he was on the pole and he died for us. And when we do that, we have to face the very same thing that the Hebrews had to face. They had to face their own sin, the result of their own sin, and realize what it was costing them, which is death. And we have to look on the body of Jesus Christ in faith and understand that our sin caused his death. It's a beautiful illustration. It's one that Christ brings forward into the New Testament. And we see the parallels here that are so important. And so understanding this, the author of the book that we read from today says he believes that looking and believing are synonymous terms. Looking at the Old Testament serpent is identical with believing on the New Testament, Christ. And he concludes that the faith, that faith is a gaze of a soul into the saving God. How do we define what faith is? Gazing unto God, looking unto Jesus, believing that he is who he said he is. Looking unto Jesus. He includes a couple of verses in this. Psalms 34 and 4 says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalms 123, beginning with verse 1, says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, So our eyes look to God, look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy on us. And we see the instruction from the psalmist thousands of years ago that says, just as those who are watching carefully to see how someone does something, their attention, right, their focus, their eyes are watching the hands of someone who is skilled in making something so they can then learn how to do it. We must look unto God until he has shown mercy upon us. 
I'm going to just pause here and speak to those who may have never truly been saved. And maybe once or twice you have looked unto the Lord. You have realized the sin that you have committed, that it was put on Christ, that he was raised on a pole. And you have known the truth. Brothers and sisters, if you have not looked until you have received mercy, look again. Do not give up seeking forgiveness. Look until your faith becomes real. That's what the psalmist tells us. Here the man seeking mercy looks straight at the God of mercy and never takes his eyes away from him until that mercy is granted. There's also something else that's very interesting that I find in this book that caused me to stop Years ago when I read it and months ago when I was reading through this chapter, I circled and highlighted and I just put stop. Even Christ looked to God. Luke 9, 16. We see it says, and he took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up unto heaven and he gave thanks and he blessed them. And then further, and more, not more importantly, but where we're going to spend a few minutes, John 5, 19. John 5, 19, if you're trying to keep up, turn there. John 5, 19, we'll be here for a minute. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, he also doeth the life of um, does the life of the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and He shows Him all things that Himself He does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. And in these short few verses, again, Christ speaking to those that He is teaching and speaking to us through the Scriptures today, we see that He is revealing an aspect of His daily life that should be earth-shattering for us. Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, the scripture teaches that. We don't have time today to delve into that, but we will accept this as truth because the Bible says it. Has a certain part of his personality as man and a certain part of his personality as God. And how these two things come together, I don't fully understand. But what seems clear to me in this is that Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, when he's walking around on earth, was only doing whatever God was doing that he was watching. If Jesus Christ is going to make decisions about what he's going to do on this earth while he was here based on what he saw his father doing, what should we be doing? The same thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. We miss this so many times and in so many ways. And this is the point where I just wrote in my book, stop, stop. And I had to stop and think about it. We somehow like to attribute to Jesus Christ something that is other than like ourselves. And to some degree, as I said, being fully God, that is true. But he had to be obedient to what? To his father. 
And how was he obedient to his father? He looked and he watched what his father did, and then he did exactly the same thing. Christ was not above this need to follow after his father. We cannot separate this. If he was to not look after his father and to make his own decisions and do what he wanted to do, then he would be what? He would be sinning like all of us do. He had to look unto his father and then do the same thing his father did, as it says later on. He must look and observe, pay attention to his father, and then he must do the things his father did. That's obedience. That's attention. And that is the model of how we should live our lives today. Our attention should be unto up to the Father. And we should then model our lives after what we have seen the Father doing in front of us. This is why the chapter is titled, The Gaze of the Soul. This idea that we are going to gaze unto the perfect one who modeled exactly how we should live and tell us what to do. And then we should go and take action and do the exact same thing. That last verse, you can interpret it likewise, or this, it could say, or does in the same way. Christ did in the same way what he saw his father doing. It's vital for us to do the same thing. But if we're not looking at the father, how can we imitate him? If our attention is divided, if we're not focusing God, then will we do what the father tells us to? No. Now recall, go back to the beginning. I talked about attention, that target glance is what we called it sometimes. You look at what you want. You look at what makes you nervous. You look at where you're going. What are you looking at? And then also consider that it's a little more difficult to do what? To look up. It's purposeful. We naturally will move in and out of this world and we'll see our feet and everything around us decently fine. But if we want to look up, what do we got to do? Actually have to look. And Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I submit to you today that we must purposefully look up to him. Not physically, with our heart, with our soul, we must be looking unto Jesus. We must keep our eyes fixed on him. Now, if you'd like to go back to Hebrews, I'll demonstrate this. We read in chapter 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And we made a comparison that um, faith is really this idea of belief and this idea of looking unto something. And I've talked about why it's important to look and how our uh, model, our Savior himself, when he walked in this earth, looked at what the Father was doing and then did what the Father was doing perfectly. And I've said that we should be doing the same thing. Now flip one chapter over in Hebrews to chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, where should we look? Unto Jesus. 
What should we do when we see whatever Jesus is doing? We should imitate and copy exactly, just like the Psalms says. But before that, we have to remember what it said in verse 1. Lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. We have to look away from what distracts us. You've got to put the phone down. And look at someone. You've got to have a conversation and not do two things at once. You've got to look We have to make sure that the distractions that we have in our lives are not distracting us because we will look at what our attention and our focus is. So I ask again, what are you looking at? Where is your attention? Where is the focus of your heart, the focus and attention of your mind? Trust me, brothers and sisters, this is not easy. Life comes at us and we're pulled in a thousand directions and we have to do X, Y, and Z. We are busy and have demand after demand put on our lives, but we will do what? We will look and focus on what? What is important. A couple of quotes from this chapter. It says, Faith is not a once-done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart. We want to understand faith. We have to understand we may come to faith at a single moment in time when we are saved, but to remain in faith, we continuously what? Look to Jesus and mimic. He says, distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird Coming back to its window. That's a very beautiful way of saying this. We will go throughout our lives and we will have moments and times and we have very keen, focused attention to the Lord. And then we will be distracted by something that goes on over here. Sometimes we cannot help it. Sometimes we are awakened in the middle of the night with a phone call that tells us disastrous news. Sometimes we are tempted to uh, consume things and put our lives in different directions and not be looking unto Jesus. But the idea is once we know the truth and once we live in faith, we will always return our gaze to what? To Him. Christ had to do this. That's why he always went away. That's why he'd go away and pray all the time. All through Scripture you see this. He'd withdraw and he'd pray. There are more people to heal. There were more people to teach. There were more miles to be walked. But what was the most important thing that he would do? He would withdraw from everything and often from everyone. He would go by himself and he would do what? He would pray and look to Jesus. Well, look to his Father. To see what his Father was doing so that he could then do the same thing. If we're not taking time to look, we're not going to hit the mark. I've mentioned this before. I'll just briefly mention it again. Again, going back to the policing stories. When I was in the academy, we did something I think was called the Michigan Straightaway. We had a series of cones about three to four inches on either side of the car. It was a straight line. And you had to get in and you had to go forward and get up to like 60 miles an hour or some crazy speed within a certain amount of feet without hitting the cones. You had to come to a stop at the end, then you had to do it backwards. Then at some point in the middle, you had to like do a three-point turn and keep going. It was very, very hard. And everyone failed on their first try, at least. Many of us failed multiple times. 
But here's the key to always doing it successfully. They would at the very far end set a single cone and at the very back end have a single cone as well. And if you looked left or right while traveling 60 miles an hour with four inches of clearance, what would you do? You'd plow through a pile of cones. But if you focused on that one point, you would do what? You'd get to where you're going, usually without hitting a single one. Now, that's difficult going forward. You put it in reverse. And everything in your body wants to do what? Look at how fast you're going because it feels like you're flying and backwards. And you were. You want to look in your left mirror, your right mirror, but what will that do? You're going you're to weave. You're going to wipe it all out. You had to look in your rearview mirror and stare at what? The single cone in the back where you're headed. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us today. We can be in a cloud of distractions. We can have so many things in our lives that are asking and begging for our attention. We can think, oh my goodness, I'm too close to the edge over here. I better look at the edge. No, you better look at Jesus Christ. You can look and say, I don't know if I'm too far away or too close from where I'm trying to get to. You better look at where you're going. There is one thing that our vision and our focus should be on, and that is Jesus Christ. And anytime we take our focus off of that, we're going to mess up. And all through the scriptures, we see this, whether Christ is talking about how we, uh, when we put our hands in the plow and we look back, what happens? Well, it gets all wobbly. None of us, well, maybe a couple, probably none of us have ever really physically plowed with a team before. But if we start getting off, if we don't look to where we're going, your line's going to be off. If we don't look to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith, we're not going to hit the mark. God wants us to have faith in Him. 2 Chronicles 16 and 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Genesis 16 and 33, the second part says, You were the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Do you want to catch a gaze of our Father? Do you want to see the one who's watching everything? Who, as I said this morning, sees every bird? Then look up. Spiritually. This is the part that I underlined in the book and repeatedly read. It reads as follows, quote, Now, if faith is the gaze of the heart at God, and if this gaze is but the raising of our inward eyes to meet the all-seeing eyes of God, then it follows that it is one of the easiest possible things to do. And it would be like God to make the most vital thing easy and place it within the range of possibility for the weakest and poorest of us. See, it's the easiest thing to do. Look to Him. You just got to look up. It's not hard to look up. We just don't do it. He makes a couple of observations, which I'll share with you. Since believing is looking, it can be done without special equipment or religious paraphernalia. All we have to do is look into Jesus with our hearts. We don't have to have a physical building. We don't have to have special tools that allow us to worship. All we have to do is lift our hearts toward Him and our eyes spiritually toward Him. We don't have to have anything that we can break or lose. 
You can be wandering in the desert, escaping with your lives from Egypt, and look unto Jesus. You can be anywhere, anyway, with nothing in your possessions. You can be the poorest person on earth and look unto Jesus and be saved. You can, in fact, be crucified on a cross next to Christ and look unto Him and receive forgiveness. That's all you have to do. It can be done at any time. When you get up, when you go to bed, when you have a question about whether to go left or to the right, when you have a question about how you should answer someone, at any moment, at any time, we can look unto Jesus Christ. And another great thing is the place doesn't matter either. The place doesn't matter. God works everywhere because he is everywhere. I wasn't saved where I expected to be saved. I wasn't called to preach where I was expecting that to happen. Not that I was expecting it to happen, but I wasn't, you know, driving down the interstate, minding my own business. But there's nothing special about that place. I can't go back to that same mile marker and somehow God reveal anything. I mentioned this once before, I think. I went back a few years ago to the place where I got saved in Pennsylvania, and I thought I'd feel something. And you know what I felt? Not much. Because it's not about the place. It's about the experience. So it doesn't matter whether you're in church or out, whether you're at home or not, whether you're working in a field or working at a factory or you're in school, when God speaks to you, when you need to hear from Him, all we have to do, no matter where we're at, is just simply to look unto Him. And lastly, He wants this of all of us. We've spent the last few months talking about how God desires to have a relationship with us. He is looking around the earth for those of us who will do what? To look unto Him. And I bet if I was to ask you some of the most sweetest and blessed moments and most encouraging moments in our entire lives have been the moments that my eyes have met His eyes. And He's always looking for me. He's waiting desperately for us to look unto Him. This doesn't mean that we dispense with Scripture reading or prayer or worship or meeting together as a church or going on missions or giving of tithes and offerings and all these things that we are to do. But it means that we are to look unto Him first and foremost and all these other things are added unto it. There's a beautiful example of this in Acts chapter 1. Christ ascends to heaven for the final time, for now. And the scripture says this as follows. And while they were gazing into heaven, and he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you unto heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I'm not trying to conflict everything I just said. But this is why the doing part is so important. These men got to see Christ in all of his glory taken up into heaven after he said, I will return someday. And they stood there just looking up. Now, how long were they there? I, I don't know. But at some point, these two men, angels, I would assume, dressed in dazzling white robes, stood among them saying, why are you looking that way? My interpretation. He's going to come back. 
Now here's what I'm going to add, okay? Go to work. Because that's what they did. They went back and began to pray and fellowship with each other. And when the Holy Spirit of God fell on them in powerful ways, they went out to every corner of the earth carrying with them the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And they changed the entire world through the power of God. Had they stood there at that one place looking, waiting for the rest of their lives, they would have been what? Disobedient. Because the Father said to go into the world and to baptize and to teach and to save those who were lost, to straighten the way, to preach the good news. And they went out and were faithful to do that. Are you faithful today? Tozer says at one point, but at the bottom of all these things, giving meaning to them, will be the inward habit of beholding God. A new set of eyes, so to speak, will develop within us, enabling us to look at God while our outward eyes are seeing the scenes of this world pass by. Let me make a quick application. I didn't have to look at those cones as I was driving past them. Why? Because I was looking at the one I was going toward. And I got really, really good at identifying people who were lying to me, people who were looking in places they shouldn't, who didn't have their full attention on me. I got very good at looking into people's eyes and determining how much it had to drink. In fact, so good, I played an internal game with myself. I was like really good. Like, ah, they're like a 0.89. Take them in and test them, and they're like a 0.87. I'm like, there you go. Here's the point. I honed my ability to watch people's eyes and learn and do. You must work on your ability to watch what Jesus is doing spiritually and to obey and follow through. Don't be concerned with what's going on out here to the side. Focus on him. Learn how to follow him. Learn to see what it is that he wants to show you. Learn to look into his face and be changed. And everything will just pass you by. Tozer says, when the habit of inward gazing Godward becomes fixed within us, we shall be ushered into a new level of spiritual life more in keeping with the promises of God and the mood of the New Testament. You know what else he says in that chapter? You know what you don't see when you're looking at God? Yourself. How many of us are always looking at ourselves? I'm not good enough. Or I'm better. I'm not wealthy enough. Or I am wealthy. How many of us in life get distracted when we focus solely on ourselves because we never stop looking at ourselves to see Jesus Christ? If you want to get yourself out of the way, look unto the author and the finisher and perfecter of our faith, and you will not see yourself as much. And you will be able to be used by him. So here's my conclusion. What are you looking at? Talking to the saints. 
I'm talking to those who at some point in your life came to faith and began to understand what that word meant. And hopefully those saints who have continued to grow in that faith to know more and more what it's like because you are more and more looking at Jesus Christ. Are you looking at the Father like Christ did? Are you mimicking the Father like Christ did? That's what we should be doing. Watching, giving our utmost attention to the Lord, not worrying about ourselves, not worrying about the things that are around us, looking unto Jesus and mimicking, that is doing what he told us to do. Church at large, he makes a beautiful point in this book. A hundred pianos, I think he said something like this, a hundred pianos all tuned to the same play together, don't they? If we want unity as a church, if we want to know the power of God among us and to see Him moving in great ways among all of us, and we want to make sure that we, as a congregation, as a group of those who are called out into the life of God, are moving in the same direction, should you look at me? No. Look at Him. Should you look at the one next to you to see what they're doing? No, you should look at Him. And when all of us singly look on Him, we'll be doing what? Going in the same direction, at the same pace, at the same way. If we want to grow the church, if we want unity in the church, we must look unto Him, not unto ourselves. And finally... Those who do not know him, who've never really understood what faith is because you've never experienced it for the first time. You have to look at your sin. Like the Israelites had to look at the serpent hanging on the stick. You have to confess to God who and what you are. That's why Jacob wrestled with God until he did what? He said his name. What's his name? Deceiver. Jacob had to admit who he was before an all-holy God, before he could finally come to submission. And the people wandering in the desert had to go to wherever this serpent was and had to look upon the very sin, the very thing that was causing their suffering. So you must come to God and lift your eyes to Him and look unto Him, realizing that you are the reason He's hanging on that tree. And look unto Him for faith, admit who you are, and seek forgiveness, and do it again and again and again until He forgives you. Psalms 123, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hands of their master, and the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. See, the reality is, he is our master. We're to look to him. And you have to look to him until he has mercy upon you. Brothers and sisters, this is a tremendous challenge that is set before us. But what a tremendous opportunity. No special place, no special physical tools, no special time. All of us at all times and always at anywhere can look unto Jesus, the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. And if Christ had to do it, we're no different. So let's look unto Jesus today.